Hello everyone and welcome to a new episode of the Cardiology Trials podcast. This is Mohamed Ruzia joined by Andrew Foy and John Mandrolla. Today we will be discussing two important trials in patients with acute myocardial infarction, TRACE and Ephesus. The TRACE trial sought to retest the hypothesis tested in SAVE and AIR with a focus on generalizability of the trial procedures and results. Specifically, the trial sought to test the hypothesis that trandolaprel, an ACE inhibitor, would reduce all-cause mortality in post-myocardial infarction patients with left ventricular dysfunction when used in the majority of potentially eligible patients. The trial was published in the New England Journal of Medicine in 1995. The trial enrolled patients with confirmed acute myocardial infarction with a wall motion index of 1.2 or less on, it, on echocardiography, which corresponds to an ejection fraction of 35% or less. The average age of patients in the trial was 68 years, and two-thirds of them had a Q-wave myocardial infarction. The trial random, randomly assigned patients to receive 1 mg of etrandolaprel once daily or matching a placebo. After two days, the dose was increased to 2 mg once daily. After four weeks, the dose was again increased to 4 mg once daily. The primary endpoint in the trial was all-cause mortality. The final analysis included 17-49 patients. Compared to placebo, Trandulapril significantly reduced all-cause death by 22%, 35% versus 42%, with a p-value of 0.001. Next is the Ephesus trial, which was published in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2003. This was a trial of aldosterone blockade using epilirinone in patients with acute myocardial infarction complicated by left ventricular dysfunction and heart failure. Patients were eligible for randomization 3 to 14 days after acute myocardial infarction with left ventricular dysfunction based on, a, on an ejection fraction of 40% or less and the clinical heart failure. The average age of patients was 65 years, and the average ejection fraction was 34%. Patients received either epilirinone 25 mg daily or a matching placebo for 4 weeks, and then the dose was increased to 50 mg daily. The trial had two primary endpoints. The first was all-cause death. The second was a composite of death from cardiovascular causes or hospitalizations for cardiovascular events. The trial enrolled about 3,300 patients in each of the epilirinone and the placebo groups. After a mean follow-up of 1.3 years, epilirinone significantly reduced all-cause death. Relative risk, 0.85, absolute numbers, 14.4% versus 16.7%, with a p-value of 0.008. It also reduced the composite endpoint of cardiovascular death or cardiovascular hospitalization. Relative risk, 0.87. Absolute values, 
26.7% versus 30%. P-value 0.002. Now I will turn the microphone to John Mandrolla and Andrew Foy to tell us about the teaching points in these trials. All right, well, welcome everybody to another Cardiology Trials podcast. Um, we're going to start with the TRACE study. And you might wonder why we're covering the TRACE study, which was trendolopril versus placebo. Um, we have so many trials that have already shown ACE inhibitors are quite beneficial in patients with acute MI and LV dysfunction. Uh, but there is a, a really special characteristic about this trial that we uh, really think is important. So I'll turn it over to Andrew Foy and he'll tell us what it is. Yeah, thanks, John. Uh, the thing about uh, about this trial that is really, which makes it uh, a special trial to me is that um, the, the authors and the investigators in this particular study acknowledge uh, in the background that I suspected, you know, it's the reason that they did this to begin with, which is, which is they acknowledge that there's some external validity concerns with uh, the prior uh, ACE inhibitor trials in this patient population in post-MI patients with heart failure and LV dysfunction. And those trials specifically were uh, the SAVE trial and the AIR trial, which we reviewed a couple weeks ago. And while we thought that both of those trials were, were quite strong trials, um, we really don't get a sense in either of them about how representative the trial populations were relative to the total population of patients with LV dysfunction or heart failure after MI. Um, and this gets to some, some issues with selection, and, and we know that clinical trials tend to enroll uh, healthier, younger patients, and that they tend to enroll populations that may not be reflective or representative of sort of the target population. Um, so what's what's special about the TRACE trial is they try to be very transparent about how they selected patients for the study. And so um, this was based on screening of consecutive patients uh, who were three to seven days uh, after an MI with an ejection fraction less than or equal to 35% based on echocardiography. And um, essentially, we... The, the authors uh, enrolled 67% of, of patients who are eligible based on those simple criteria, um, being an adult, being three to seven days post-MI, and having um, an, an ejection fraction less than 35%. Um, and 67% and of potentially eligible people is a really high rate of uh, enrollment to screening. Um, now, the trial did use a mini run-in period. They're very transparent about that, where they gave all patients uh, a half milligram of trandalopril. Um, and that did result in uh, about 1% of patients being excluded because they could not tolerate that dose. But hey, at least as clinicians, we know that. We know that a small percentage of potentially eligible patients won't be able to tolerate the drug. So, hey, you try it. If they don't tolerate it, they don't tolerate it. Um, but, but otherwise, the trial, I think, had really high external 
Uh, validity, I think the procedures were pretty easy to apply. Um, they essentially just gave trandalopril one milligram daily, increased it to two milligrams after two days, and then to four milligrams uh, uh, after four weeks. Um, so pretty easy protocol. Uh, outpatient visits were fairly standard, uh, one and three months following the index hospitalization, every three months thereafter. There wasn't any special requirements for blood work uh, to be done at, at any certain interval rate. Um, and with that, I think fairly simple protocol with this very sort of um, unselective uh, patient population, 67% of, of potentially eligible patients, we still see a, a significant difference um, in the primary endpoint of all-cause mortality, um, basically 35% versus 42%. Uh, the number needed to treat was 14, uh, basically to prevent one, uh, one death. Um, secondary endpoints were all reduced with the exception of a reinfarction. And so it's just, a, in my opinion, a very strong trial. It sort of um, uh, supports how robust the treatment effect is for ACE inhibition uh, in this patient population, which is post-MI post patients with LV dysfunction and or uh, clinical congestive heart failure. Um, and I, I think this trial would alleviate uh, concerns that some people may have about sort of um, the selection of, of unique patients that, that may tolerate and benefit from these drugs. Um, I don't think we need to, I think we don't need to be concerned about that based on, um, based on this study. So I think we've, we very rarely get studies like this in clinical medicine where the emphasis is more on external validity or, or representativeness of the population as opposed to uh, internal validity and sort of proving that something has a positive effect. So it makes the, this trial really unique, in my opinion, uh, and, and stands out. Um, so yeah, I mean, I guess I, I would just leave it at that and turn it over to, to you guys and see if you have anything to say. The evidence generation for ACE inhibition after MI and LV dysfunction is really strong, right? Po possibly the reason that these Danish investigators could do this was that they had so much data beforehand that ACE inhibitors were beneficial. But I think another unique characteristic of this is that we, we don't always have this kind of uh, sort of evidence generation of some of the therapeutics that we have. Like we, I mean, for Secubitril Valsartan, we have one trial. And and so it's, it's uh, I don't know, I, I just, I'm going over this, I'm just struck by the strength of the evidence. And I think this uh, TRACE trial really, really is excellent. And I, I wonder whether it could have been done first, you know, whether, whether, you know, if they didn't have those other trials in, in more selective patient populations, whether it could be done. And it does get to the whole tension of, you know, what is a trial for? Is it is it for, you know, finding the effects in a very select group? Or is it for more pragmatically just 
uh, out there in the general population? I don't have, it's a question, but it's not really an answerable question because I think there's, there's both reasons. Yeah, right, right. I, well, I mean, I think that it's certainly fine to have trials that are, I would consider them proof of efficacy trials. Um, but I think if, if we're going to adopt something broadly, we, we should also have pragmatic trials that, that accompany that. Um, and to me, I mean, I guess I can understand why some people might feel that there's a tension there. I, I don't personally see it as that much of a, of a tension. I mean, I, it, it's perfectly acceptable to me that, that a drug or an intervention may benefit a select group of patients and we should apply it in a select group of patients. And it's not worthless if it doesn't benefit, let's say, a broader group of patients. I think the point is to understand who who that target population is that benefits or is harmed the most, and and to apply it appropriately after that, which is which is one of the entire points of of this entire this whole project is really understanding the patients who who may benefit the most from these interventions so we can apply them better yeah but Ruzier, he that uh, andrew has no problem with applying the trial results as they are and but i think that out in clinical practice i don't know how it is in florida but in kentucky there's a strong push to uh uh expand these therapies to uh, probably broader populations than that they should be. And I think some of that, I want to be careful here, but some of that may be related to guideline guidelines and or misunderstanding of guidelines or misapplication of guidelines or uh, GOLB uh, uh, quality measures. Yeah, I, I think this happens everywhere. Um... And I don't know why it happens more recently with the new therapies that the trials are select selective in their inclusion criteria. And once we get positive results, we say we will apply this to everyone. And that's not, and that's in my opinion, not the right thing to do because a lot of therapies benefit a certain population, but they may not benefit all. So to apply the results of a selective trial on everyone, I think that's uh, that's not the right thing to do. Well, I, I think it's basic human nature to some extent. Um, I mean, if if there's a new product, then you're a company that that stands to benefit from marketing the product as broadly as possible. You have an incentive to do that. It's the job of the clinical community to to essentially adjudicate the people who you know who should and should not receive that particular product. I think unfortunately, because of some of the conflicts of interest involved, we have this sort of expansionist framework at at the level of our societies and, and guidelines to be sort of overly enthusiastic. Uh, um, but I think, I do think that the clinical community can stop that if we wanted to. Um, we just have to uh, be a little stronger, maybe, with our with our objections. All right, all right. Let's move to let's move to the next trial, the Ephesus trial. Um, 
and th this is one that I actually I actually didn't didn't know or couldn't cite, but this is epilerinone in uh, post-MLI patients with LV dysfunction, and there are some quite special features uh, uh, here as well. Epilerinone being a uh, MRA mineralocorticoid receptor antagonist drug, and so I guess Andrew, why don't you uh, again give us the rundown of the of the main teaching points. I think there are a couple here. Sure. So um, this, well, first, this trial was published in 2003. The average length of follow-up was about 1.3 years. The primary, there was two primary endpoints. One was all-cause mortality uh, tested at a P of less than 0.04. And the second was a composite endpoint of cardiovascular death or cardiovascular hospitalization tested at a p-value of less than 0.001. So these authors split the alpha, similar to how uh, what, we, what we mentioned with the Capricorn uh, trial last week, um, a total of uh, 6,632 patients were enrolled and divided fairly evenly between the groups. Um, hey, can I just stop you there? I'm sorry. Sure. Can we don't see this splitting alpha uh, very much anymore. And the idea is you have two primary endpoints and uh, each of them, you know, can have false positive rates and, and this splitting of the alpha testing one at one level of significance and one uh, at the other. So that I, I get the sense that the total trial, uh, the total trial alpha or false positive or P value threshold is still 0 0.05 like normally, but I've seen a lot of modern trials with co-primary endpoints that don't do this. And do you, when none of us are statisticians, but I just wonder if you have any thoughts on that. Well, I mean, I think from a rigor standpoint, I mean, this is, this is the more rigorous uh, way to do it. And it basically reduces the possibility of declaring uh, a result positive that's that's not positive or, um, or basically declaring a false positive signal. Um, so the idea would be that, the, that you use most of your alpha on the endpoint that has the most power um, and that, that you basically have a higher threshold um, for endpoints that may have lower statistical power because of the issue with false positives. And, it, and it's really important to know the concern is about false positives, not false negatives. Um, I, at least from a statistical standpoint, I think there's just sort of in this bargain to live with false, you know, to live with false negatives um, more so than false positives. And probably that has to do with clinical relevance and things of that nature, um, because, you know, how small of an effect size do you really truly care about? So um yeah i mean i think it's a the more rigorous way to do a trial um i guess i haven't really thought about in terms of it, this happening more or less now um i i don't know i don't know about that all right excellent sorry to interrupt yeah no so so anyway uh i mean this trial was um Again, fairly easy to apply this intervention. They just looked at patients who were three to 14 days post-MI with an EF less than 40% 40 40 in clinical heart failure. Now, the patients could have diabetes without clinical heart failure. B 
The only major exclusion criteria was creatinine greater than 2.5 or potassium greater than 5. Um, and the drug was started on average uh, seven days post-MI. And basically, it was a plerinone 25 daily or placebo for four weeks, and then increased to 50 daily or placebo. Um, there was more follow-up visits uh, with, with this than we see with the ACE inhibitor trials. So, for example... There's follow-up visits uh, at one, uh, four weeks, and three months post-discharge, and then every three months thereafter. And potassium was measured, um, you know, 48 hours after any after the start of treatment, and then at one, four, and five weeks after the start of treatment, and at all study visits, and also within one week of any dose change. Um, so there, there was um, a lot of, I guess, caution around surveillance and monitoring of these patients. But to be quite frank, it's not more than what we see in the beta blocker trials. Um, in fact, it's it's probably on par or even, even less um, if you consider like how um, sort of how fussy they were in the Capricorn trial uh, with dose titration and follow-up. Um, but so anyway... Um, the differences were were significant. All-cause mortality that was statistically significant. The P was zero point zero zero eight, and so that met the the value to declare statistical significance, which was less than zero point zero four. It was a number needed to treat a forty-three patients to prevent one from dying, and for the composite endpoint, it also um, had a number needed to treat of thirty, and the P was zero. 0.002, which was less than 0.01. So it could also be declared statistically significant. And unlike a trial like Capricorn per se, I mean, the value wasn't 0.04 and they just said it was significant anyway. So rigor was maintained throughout the uh, analysis and interpretation of the results, in my opinion. Now, the one, the one um, not issue, but thing that we should remember and think about when uh, considering starting patients on MRAs who are post-MI is that there was uh, some very strong uh, treatment effect heterogeneity signals in this trial. And I think um, that it's unlikely that they're false positive signals. So one is patients with lower pulse pressure uh, didn't benefit. And lower pulse pressure would be synonymous with lower blood pressure in these post-MI patients in general, so lower systolic blood pressures. Um, but we don't, unfortunately, have a have a cutoff to sort of um, guide us. But, you know, I don't, I don't know that a cutoff's all that important. I mean, if you have a 65-year-old patient who lived at a blood pressure of, of 140 or 150 pre-heart attack, and now they're living at a blood pressure of of 105 or 110, I mean, you can know that there's been some hemodynamic changes that have occurred there, and that might be a patient who would be less susceptible uh, to benefit from this drug. So lower, so lower pulse pressure. Um, let me can I let me stop you about the pulse pressure. We we don't seem to use that as much anymore. And why 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 is that? And why did they use pulse pressure versus systolic blood pressure? Is there any historical uh, nuggets of wisdom there, or is it just, that's what they did? Yeah, I don't, there, I couldn't tell you. Um, and they don't really mention that in the trial. I, I, 
I, I don't know. I just suspect it was like an idiosyncratic thing based on the investigators. Okay. I, I mean, Ruzier, do you have any thoughts on that? Uh, no, I'm not sure. I mean, now we know that a narrow pulse pressure is uh, basically an indicator of low cardiac output. So it is. Uh, it tells us about you know cardiac output if you have a narrow pulse pressure. So right, but I mean you could also make a similar inference almost just using systolic blood pressure, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, but anyway, I mean I think I don't think we need to fuss too much about that. I mean if our pa if the patient has a you know has a low normal blood pressure, uh, they might they would likely fall into that category. I would say, especially if systolic's less than 100. Um, but but anyway, also abnormal kidney function. Now, this was a, a, a strong signal in the trial and one that we really need to take into consideration. So basically, the subgroup analysis looked at creatinine less than one versus creatinine greater than one. And I mean, we know that creatinine greater than one, depending on individual's body size, might almost be like normal kidney function. Um, and this trial excluded patients with creatinine greater than 2.5. Um, so basically, patients that were 1 to 2.5 um, did not benefit, um, whereas patients creatinine less than 1, there was a strong signal of benefit. And that, that p-value for the interaction was less than uh, 0 0.05. And and we we rarely see interaction values that strong um, in these clinical trials just because of the of the power available for these subgroup analyses. So that's a really strong um, signal, and it it should I think give us pause in thinking about um, should we should we consider using this drug or not, and be very and and be very cautious about monitoring it as they did in the trial. If we do start this drug in patients, even if they, let's say, have CKD3B, um, who would not be a population of patients that I would consider susceptible to, let's say, ACE inhibitors, for example. Um, so there's that, there's that signal. And then the other signal, which is uh, really strong, is that patients that were intolerant to other standard therapies. So for patients that couldn't be on an ACE inhibitor, they didn't seem to benefit at all. The signal was strong. It was also very strong for patients that couldn't be on a beta blocker. Um, signal was very strong that they didn't benefit. And so I think what that sort of tells me is that if you have a patient who is, is sort of just barely hanging on, let's say from a hemodynamic standpoint to maintain their blood pressure. I mean, if you can't tolerate an ACE, and we've seen now sort of the list of, of trials in ACE inhibitor patients, they tend to um, improve cardiac output. Uh, and so if you can't tolerate an ACE inhibitor, um, you're not going to tolerate this drug either. And the same even goes for, for a beta blocker, it appears. Uh, so and and one final group is that patients, if they were had a diagnosis of hypertension before the trial, they seemed to benefit a lot. And if they didn't, they did not. 
So it sort of, to me, paints the picture of, of, of a fairly robust patient who is stable and either normotensive or hypertensive post-MI with LV dysfunction, who is on at least uh, an ACE inhibitor um, and, you know, and, and stable, that would be the patients that I would look for to start this drug, as opposed to, let's just say, everybody who was post-MI with LV dysfunction and or heart failure. Another point I'd make about that this, and let's just the CKD thing, is the uh, exclusion criteria versus the actual patient characteristics. So they may have allowed a creatinine up to 2.5, but the average creatinine concentration was 1.1. So I think it's a, a teaching point for me is you, you uh, oftentimes the guidelines will incorporate the exclusion and inclusion criteria, but the actual enrolled patient uh, patient characteristics is different. So uh, it doesn't sound like there were a lot of patients with creatinines that high if the average was 1.1. Well, I mean, I don't, I don't know. Um, but what I would say is that if you look at the confidence intervals around the, the point estimate uh -huh. or on the forest plot, the essentially the width of the confidence interval looks almost the same for the patients greater than 1.1 versus less than 1.1. Right. No, it, it's fine. I totally agree with the subgroup with the treatment of heterogeneity, but I just would, yeah, I would, I would say, and I think you said it just, okay, don't, maybe don't cite this trial. Say we're going to start, we're going to start an MRA, even though the creatinine's two, um, because that's what they allowed in a trial. Um, I think when you when you look at the average creatinine concentration of 1.1 and you look at this subgroup, it definitely would induce a fair amount of caution. Right. Okay. And then the other thing, the other thing that comes up, and we'll go over this, but the other thing that comes up is when you look at the uh, uh, ICD trials, the ICD trials, you could be enrolled in the trial if you were ejection fraction less than, say, 35%. But then when you go to the characteristics of the patient, there's actually the the actual enrolled ejection fraction is a lot lower than that. Um, and then they've even done subgroup analysis there and showed that, you know, a, uh, it's lower ejection fraction, it does better. So I think it's very similar here that the lower creatinine or better kidney function patients do better, even though you are allowed to enroll patients with higher creatinines. Right, it's, it's, right. Ju it's just it's just exclusion and inclusion criteria, not the same as patient characteristics. That's right. That's right. And, and you know, it's good that they provide us at least this level of detail in, in the subgroup analysis. Would you agree? Yeah. And also just your point about we, we're always cautious with subgroup analyses, because when you do a lot of subgroup analyses, there can be just by just by chance, you know, you can get things like uh, uh, astrological signs showing positivities. But here, number one, I think you have a positive trial with a strong effect size in the overall population, so that's a positive. And you also have these subgroups that that have some basis in in 
uh, pathophysiology, right? We know that we know that patients with kidney, you know, kidney abnormalities may be more susceptible to problems. We we know that patients with softer blood pressure uh, will have more problems, and we know that patients who can't tolerate uh, other uh, therapies are maybe that's a surrogate marker just for a multimorbidity and and or a, a, a sicker patient who's less likely to benefit from these therapies. Right. I, that's right. All right. I mean, this is, uh, what else, Rosier? Anything else? What did we miss? Well, we had uh, we had a comment in our sub oh, yeah. about class effect. If uh, if we think if they're known uh, is different than spironolactone in terms of uh, outcomes. And this is a this is a good question because actually, um, uh, I wonder about this. I tend to use spironolactone, but maybe um, if costs are similar, maybe eplerinone would have fewer side effects. I, I don't know. I'm not an expert in this area, but I wonder what you think, Andrew. Well, um, just from the standpoint of being a bit of a purist about applying trials, I we have the evidence uh, for a plerinone, um, and so I tend to use a plerinone if I can in these patients, and I use spironolactone in patients with chronic systolic heart failure. But I think that you know Dr. Rougier has some uh, good points uh, to bring to this in terms of like the the mechanism of action of, of the drugs and some things that things that uh, clinicians may want to consider. Yeah. So for things, so first of all, if Iplerinone is a spironolactone derivative and it was designed to enhance a selective binding of the uh, min mineralocorticoid receptor, it however binds it with a lower affinity compared to spironolactone. It also has over a hundred times less affinity to the progesterone and, and, and androgen receptors. So it does have less uh, sexual side effects related to these receptors. Uh, it's true that we don't have large studies comparing them head to head, but I think it's important to consider the side effects when uh, using these medications. Also, spironolactone have metabolites that are active and they have long half-life uh, around 14 to 15 hours, while iplerinone metabolites are not active. Again, I don't know if these differences will change clinical outcomes, but we do know that at least the sexual side effects are a lot less with iplerinone than spironolactone. It's good to know. Yeah, it is good to know. All right. Well, this was another great conversation. I learned a lot. Gosh, I'm learning a lot with looking at these seminal trials. So I guess we should no. just say, yeah, go ahead. Just one point I, I wanted to make. Um, I, I mean, this hasn't, I don't think there's too much controversy in this in these trials this week. But I guess maybe if I could introduce a small point of controversy, which is when it comes to the initiation of therapies in patients, um, yeah. especially in the hospital, um, what I have, the one that seems to ha have the most wiggle room, for example, 
is the MRA uh, is the MRAs. And the cited reason for that, at least from uh, the people that I've heard talk about this issue, is because um, they are challenging for people to adhere with the uh, monitoring. And so if they have concerns about patients' ability to transport themselves or to get blood work, and I just want to say or emphasize that we really, when it comes to a plurinone in this trial, the monitoring was not more intensive than it was for the beta blocker trials, because I see no concern about those particular drugs. And I just, I hate this. I mean, I might sound like a broken record, always sort of coming back to this, but, um, you know, I, do you think that either or both of you think that that's a fair statement that the intensive that the sort of intensity of monitoring for the for a plerinone was not any greater than it was for Capricorn uh, or or Carvedilol in the Capricorn trial or you know the BHAT trial? I, do, do you think that that's? Am I making a sort of is that too much of an extrapolation there, or do you think it's reasonable? Well, I think they they may be the same. They may be the same trial procedures or similar, but I do think that the uh, concern with the MRAs is the potassium, and um, and you know with with the beta blockers, you're maybe the surrogate is a little easier because it's blood pressure. And heart rate, whereas whereas potassium can be a real can be a, a real concern, uh, especially in vulnerable patients. So I guess that would be my only, uh, you know, my only worry with these with these drugs. Right, I think that's fair. I mean, I I think that's fair. But I guess in terms of the the monitoring, I mean. In Capricorn, it was outpatient visits every three to 10 days for assessment of tolerability and further up titration. Um, and then sort of the same maintenance schedule after, after I guess, a, a steady dose was achieved. But like, that's pretty darn intensive. Yeah. Um, and that's I, not used. No one does that that I know of. Right. So I, I just think that's important to uh to to point out. Um and to keep in keep in the back of people's mind, which is if we think of spironolactone as this very potentially dangerous drug that requires intensive monitoring, uh, I think I think we should also have some caution when it comes to the beta blockers. If we're looking at the intensity of monitoring used in the studies that's fair very fair that's a good point all right all right excellent uh that was a great conversation and i'm learning and thank you so much both of you yeah thank you yeah thank you we'll see you next week if you like this please follow and give us a rating to make it easier for others to find us